the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Commodore retired Chris Beatty, DFC, AFC. Chris's flying career started when he learnt to fly light aircraft with the Air Force cadets at Parafield back in 1963. He joined the Royal Australian Air Force in 1966, graduating on the number 64 pilots. In 1968, he saw a significant expansion of the Australian forces in Vietnam, which included number 9 Squadron's helicopters. Half of his pilot's course was then converted onto helicopters and all posted to fly Iroquois helicopters in South Vietnam. The squadron was based in the port of Vung Tau in the Phuc Thuy province as part of the 1st Australian Task Force. In Vietnam, Chris flew both assault and gunship versions of the Huey, sometimes under interesting combat conditions. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross as a helicopter gunship pilot with Number 9 Squadron in the Vietnam conflict. In 1975, Chris had a three-year assignment as a flying training advisor to the newly established Singapore Air Force. Chris has flown in three aerobatic and formation display teams, including the Roulettes as Roulette 4 on Mackie Jets and was leader of the 1981 Chinook Diamond Jubilee display team. He introduced the RAAF balloon into service in 1990. He left the Permanent Air Force in 1987 to take up a position as chief pilot for Bell Helicopter, but rejoined the RAAF in 1989. He spent five years in the Operational Requirements Force Development Branch of the ADF, which included a three-year assignment to the Pentagon in the United States Air Force Plans and Operations Division. Throughout his military career, he held a number of senior appointments, most notably as the Director of Flying Safety for the Air Force and ADF and the Commanding Officer No. 12 Chinook Squadron. He was awarded an Air Force Cross, flying Chinooks with Number 12 Squadron. In 1999, he was promoted to Air Commodore to take command of the RAAF's Combat Support Group, which was responsible for operating Dili and Bakau airfields during the East Timor campaign. His final assignment was as the Commander Air Force's Training Command. Well, Chris, nice to have your company as part of the uh, the series of interviews we're doing on the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, I've got to ask you, you were in the Air Force cadets at Parafield back in 1963. Tell us about Parafield. Uh, well, I was actually, it was a, a place called Penfield, which was part of the new Edinburgh airfield that was established in South Australia about 1954, I think, somewhere like that. So there, there was a a flight at the old WRE, Weapons Research Establishment at Salisbury, which was part of Penfield. The Air Training Corps had number 13 flight there. So it was only about five miles from uh, Parafield. 
So were you still at school at that stage or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I joined when I was about 13 or 14, something like that. And um, through 13 flight, we used to meet uh, Tuesday nights and Saturday afternoons. I learned to fly. While you are at school? Yeah, there's quite a few of us uh, were doing that. So uh, we'd learned to fly on the Victoria Tour of 100 and then a Cessna 172. Saturdays, uh, 13 flight also had its own link trainer, so we used to muck around with that. Also used to take us to Port Adelaide Rifle Range, and we all learnt to fire the 303 and the oh. uh, Bren gun and the Owen submachine gun, and the, and we all had jobs there, you know, at the butts. What an interesting school career. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, it was actually nothing to do with school. The cadets were... Yeah, outside of school, but while you were at school, that's fa- fantastic. So what, what turned you on to flying in the first instance? Was it just because it was close to you or...? No, we had a long history in the family with military service. So both my mum and dad were in the Air Force during the war. Dad was actually in 13 Squadron as a sergeant engine fitter in Darwin when the Japs bombed. Wow. He retired from the Air Force as a uh, flight engineer on Liberators uh, with 25 Squadron at Cunderdon in West Australia. And that's where he met my mother, who she was a um, cipher clerk. They got, got HD mobbed at the end of the war. Uh, Dad worked for McRobinson Miller Airways as a engine person. And then in 1950, he rejoined the Air Force and was posted to Williamtown on, uh, I think it was 5OTU. But he worked on uh, Mustangs, Meteors, and then the Savers. And then uh, 1955, uh, he got posted to Edinburgh Air Trials Unit, and he worked on a whole bunch of stuff there. Yeah, well, Chris, you end up then joining the Air Force in 1966. No doubt they would have welcomed you with open arms, given that you could already fly. I think most of us who were joining the Air Force about that time, if they were ex-Air Training Corps cadets, had had all had a, a bit of a go at flying, and in fact, in some ways, it was uh, it went it worked against you, you know, because the instructors used to think they had to teach the bad habits that you had, <laughs> get, get rid of them, and then uh, you know teach you properly. So, so what was what was ninety uh, sixty four pilots course like? It was a very different course. The ages went from eighteen, which was what I was, to uh, about twenty six. Uh, we had forty Air Force students, eight were uh, officers. A couple of them, I think you already know, Tiny Ashbrook, Neil Smith, uh, and 32 uh, cadet aircrew. Um, so that was 40. We also had six army guys who did the Point Cook windshield phase. And we found out many years later that there were actually supposed to be eight army guys, but two of them disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe they joined the Navy. Anyway, <laughs> we'll let yeah. that go through to the keeper. 66, was that beginning of 66 you joined or middle or end? Whereabouts in that 1966? That was October 66 and we graduated 21 out of the 40, February 68. In 68, you were then posted immediately to Vietnam. No, they, uh, in 1968, Nine Squadron was expanding from eight B-model helicopters, uh, Hueys, to 16 hotel. Our course graduation happened to coincide with that uh, expansion. So 11 of us were posted straight away to Five Squadron at Canberra to learn to fly the uh, Huey. Uh, so that course was May till August, about 100 hours flying. And um, and then after, after we'd graduated in August by May the following year, I think we'd all been trickle-fed up into uh, Vietnam with Nine Squadron. But just interesting, I mean, obviously you learnt to fly before you got into the Air Force, you joined the Air Force uh, on number 64 pilot's course. 
had you had an expectation that you would end up in a, in a plane rather than a, a chopper? To be perfectly honest, like, well, I, I really can't remember what I was after, but um, the idea of learning to fly helicopters, I, I knew that that's where most of us were going to end up. So I was quite happy with the outcome. The course in or the conversion course to helicopters, how difficult or how easy was that moving from fixed wing to helicopters? Oh, look, to me, it was all just part and parcel of, uh, you know, it was just another conver- aircraft conversion that I had to do. But I've got to say that the three instructors that I had were absolutely outstanding. Bill Gill was an ex-RAF lightning fighter pilot. Uh, he'd come across for, I think, three years to as part of the Air Force, uh, the Australian Air Force. Um, Frank Riley, who was a wonderful guy. He was a guy that flew in the Battle of uh, Long Tan. He, he was part of that push. And a guy called Les Morris, who uh, used to love taking you to the edge of the flight envelope on what the helicopter could do, and you know, t- particularly when you lost your engine. You know, I was pretty lucky because I had three really good instructors. Yeah, well, that's part I've gathered from the various people I've spoken to, that the depth of talent on the training people for pilots, whether they be helicopters or planes, is quite extraordinary within the RAAF. It seems to be a almost a, a, a unique characteristic of the Australian Air Force. Yeah, I could go along with that because uh, after uh, my tour in Vietnam, I actually uh, spent... Uh, seven or eight years, I think it was, flying fixed wing in the instructional uh, role uh, with the various uh, flying schools and up in Singapore and then back at CFS. When you got to Vietnam, was that posting straight to Vung Tau in the Phuc Thuy province? Yes. Well, that's where Nine Squadron was based. And the thing, the difference between the way the Air Force operated and the Army operated, I guess, in that sense, was that we kept the same squadrons up there didn't matter whether it was two squadron, nine squadron or 35 squadron. It was that same squadron and the people rotated through. Whereas with the army, what they did was, uh, you know, looking at the big picture, the uh, battalions, they had nine battalions and three battalions were always in Vietnam. So there was one battalion that had just finished and it was uh, sort of sent back home and they used... Yeah, it, it had to rebuild itself and they used that battalion as uh, uh, for training purposes. And then you always had one battalion that was preparing to rotate through Vietnam. So it was so, a, a rotating process as distinct from number nine squadron being fixed and it was just the personnel that came. Yes. And so it, it, at home, everyone had to go through five squadron before they got posted to nine squadron. Mm. Um your time in Vietnam was on both assault and gunship Hueys. Can you just explain to the person who doesn't understand that now, who's listening, what the difference between the two is? Sure. Um, well, the, the slick or the assault version of the helicopter was the uh, the one that what the Americans called uh, hash and trash. So it did all the administrative sort of work, um, taking barbed wire into fire support bases, food, ammunition, rotating people, uh, taking doctors in, taking guys uh, back back to the home port. port. Um, and they also did the assault stuff, the combat assaults, that uh, when we were moving battalions in and around the province, um, doing uh, 
special forces inserts and extractions. In other words, putting the SAS in and pulling them out. Yep. Um, it had a hook, so it could carry uh, a couple of thousand pounds of uh, stuff like barbed wire externally on the hook. Uh, fuel, you know, it could take 44-gallon drums, uh, a number of them at a time. Uh, you could had a winch, so you could winch people in and out of, you know, jungle environments. Yep. Uh, and for a while, we also had uh, did a very, very difficult role with them of um, dropping ropes, 100-foot-length ropes, out of the helicopter to uh, pluck out special forces uh, patrols uh, who couldn't get to a pad to be extracted, you know, from an L- a proper LZ. So that was the uh, it was the bread and butter role of uh, you know the slick, uh, and it also had a role, of course, for um, medevac for dust offs. Sure. Uh, so you could do that at day at night. Uh, the gunship itself, uh, the version that I flew when we were up there, and it, it, it changed a little bit from time to time, but we had uh, 14 rockets, uh, seven rockets uh, on a, each side of the aircraft in a pod, a, a fixed firing, forward firing minigun with 5,000 rounds of 7.62 uh, for each gun, so that was 10,000 rounds. Every sixth round, I think, was a red tracer. And then we had uh, a gunner on either side of the helicopter that had uh, uh, 20 M60 machine guns with, I think it was 750 rounds per gun. So that's what, that's six yeah. p- six people on the crew? Or I'm just trying to count as you were saying that. Is how many on uh, the crew? Four, two pilots, two gunners. So the forward gunner was fired. The forward gun was fired by the pilots. Is correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep. And, and the rockets were fired by the, uh, the the flying pilot as well. And what would the undercarriage of the uh, the gunship be in terms of protecting the the people in the the helicopter from fire below? Um, nothing except for the uh, the seats. The pilot seats had. Uh, armour plating underneath them and, and at the back and on the sides. Um, and that, that was about it. So the, the gunners on either side, they were <laughs> – they weren't protected under – they couldn't sit on their helmet, shall I say. Um, they had a uh, – what do they call it? Uh, armoured plating on their chest uh, and a flak vest, uh, and that was about it. So what was below was open to whatever – yeah, it was just the floor, basically. Okay, and, okay. Uh, the fuel uh, tanks. You've also said flying the assault and gunship Hueys sometimes under interesting circumstances. What were those interesting circumstances, Chris? Okay, well, um, one of the the big roles we oh, let me go back one. We had sixteen helicopters, and we were required to have thirteen helicopters online each day. So that meant uh, 10 slicks uh, doing the hash and trash tasks or assaults and three gunships. So we always had two gunships as a light fire team up at Nui Dat and the third gunship would be back at Vung Tau and usually the captain of the third gunship, he was a deputy leader if he was required to go for a, a heavy fire team. But he was also uh, one of the squadron test pilots, so he'd be back at Vung Tau doing any test flying that needed to be done. So we've got three gunships, ten slicks. Um, if, 
there was a if we knew that there was a big combat assault movement coming up in other words a battalion was going to be deployed into the field into its area of operations then sometimes we could get the whole 16 helicopters serviceable right so we were crewed for um 36 pilots in the squadron so we had 16 crews available you know if we had to use them and then there would be you know, the other four uh, pilots would be either the uh, CI, the XO, or you know somebody sick or somebody on R and R or whatever. But if you had the sixteen helicopters available and you had a combat assault role coming up, then you had effectively three flights of four aircraft, and um, mostly it was about eight to ten. But every so often, you know, you you know you could put up. Uh, 12 uh, assault helicopters. So the way you work them, if you could imagine uh, a finger four uh, on your hand, yes, um, that was the formation that we used to have. And we call it heavy left or heavy right. So you'd have four, four helicopters in a formation, red formation, blue formation, yellow formation. The assault force, if you had... Uh, the 10 or 12, there's usually in a company around about 140-odd uh, soldiers. Half of them would fit into the 10 or 12 uh, assault choppers in, in that formation of, you know, two, uh, two fours and a, and a pair at the back or, or another four. So the assault would be to an LZ that would be within the area of operation that the battalion was going to work in. It would be prepared by artillery uh, about 30 minutes before the assault went in. And then after the, uh, the guns had stopped, the RD had stopped, usually uh, ground attack fighters would come in and drop a few bombs around the, the edge of the LZ. Then just before the assault landed, you'd get the gunships would go in about 30 seconds beforehand and then they would fire uh, what we called flechette rockets and they were little uh, one-inch-long steel um, arrows, if you like, yep. uh, about 3,000 in a, in a flechette rocket, and they would be aimed at the tree line in case there were any Charlie in the, on the tree line. Uh, and then when the slicks came in in a big formation of, as I say, anywhere between 8 and 12, the outside guns would start shooting. Um, you would be hoping that the guy leading would fly a very, very precise approach because if he was too high and too slow, as you got closer and closer to the ground, the guys at the back would start to run out of tower rotor control. And then um, above you, normally you would have a command and control a helicopter with the CO of the squadron and the CO of the battalion. It was pretty much radio silence except for the command and control ship saying to the red leader, you know, close up, giving him final instructions as close to the tree line as you can get. Everybody would be trying to maintain their formation, trying to watch where the other helicopters were, were going, trying to uh, see through the dust, Gosh. trying to avoid bomb craters, trying to avoid trees that had been fallen down and your adrenaline levels were pretty high. But as you were getting closer to the ground, you always knew if you had a guys in the back who had done it before because as soon as they got to about five foot, they'd start jumping out and, uh, you know, they'd hit the ground and not move. 
so as I leapt off, of course, you started to get more power. You weren't pulling as much power and you'd, you'd maintain a better control. And eventually you'd find somewhere to touch down. Everyone would jump off. Uh, the soldiers knew that once they hit the ground, they had to lie there and stay there because if they got up and started to run anywhere, they're just as likely to run into a tire rider. Right, so it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting circumstances is a rather polite way of putting it, Chris. It was uh, safer to be flying the gunships because you'd watch them at the end. They'd all start to wobble around and, you know, occasionally one might do a 180-degree un- uncommanded uh, <laughs> bit of flying. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd usually wait for Yellow T to say, we're all down or we're, we're all ready to go. And that was about the only... Uh, conversation you'd hear over the uh, you know, over the radios and and then you'd go back you'd get airborne you go back to Nui Dat and you'd pick up the second half of the company and this time because the pad was secure you've got drop just drop 70 guys off you'd just fly in and, and it was a little bit more relaxed because you could spread out a little bit and, and then uh, you'd go back and you'd pick up the lead element of the next company and do it and all over again you do it all over again, yeah. Just listening to that description, it's it would seem that a, a, the pilot in Vietnam, the pilot, the helicopter pilot in Vietnam, had a far more complex role than maybe the pilot in a in a jet or or a fighter pilot, because you've got to take into consideration the others yeah. around you. You've got to take into consideration the people coming out of the the heli the helicopter. You've got to take into con- consideration how close you are to the to the trees, it sounds very, very complex. All those computations going on in your head at the one time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a polite way of saying yes. I totally agree with, because, I, I mean, the beauty of it all was that you'd been trained for all the different roles. When you were actually uh, programmed to whatever, you know, whether you're going to be Albatross 01, which was the lead lead chopper, or, or Albatross, you know, one zero. Um, you never knew what you were likely to end up doing that day. You know, your, your normal week's routine, if you like, was along the lines you'd do five days where you, you could be doing anything. You could be doing SAS inserts, extracts. They could be hot. You could be doing combat assaults. Sure. Um, you could cutting uh, fuel, food, you know, to, to the diggers, moving people around. Um you know, you do that for five days, and then on the sixth day, you'd be rostered for a night dust-off, which went from six in the evening to six in the morning. And again, with the night dust-offs, you never knew what you were going to do. You you could uh, do nothing, or you could be called out to, you know, mm. rescue somebody who's just been shot, uh, or take somebody to the specialist hospital up in Benoit Longbin. So you just never knew. Yeah, Chris, and I don't want you to be modest about it because it's a very important award as a gunship pilot with number nine squadron you were awarded the distinguished flying cross the dfc which is a rather significant award can you tell us the circumstances that led to that well it's that that's difficult because uh, my view on uh, the distinguished flying cross was that any helicopter pilot who was flying as a captain in vietnam at some stage in his tour, he was probably doing involved in uh, incidents where he could have or should have been awarded you know, a distinguished flying cross. Sure. Um, so I, I kind of 
saw it as it was really a squadron award. Funny way to think about it, I suppose. But I never, ever uh, dreamt of winning one or being awarded one. And I certainly didn't know it was coming. It was a big shock about 18 months later that I'd, I'd been told that it, uh, that's what, it, what, was, what I'd been awarded. So, yeah. Um, Look, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. And obviously, in any group, it's a team that actually goes to war. It's not an individual. Uh, I appreciate that. But as a way, when a person is awarded a Victoria Cross or a DFC or any Medal of Honour, those around and or above that person have decided this man or this woman is best represents that team's effort. So given that you were awarded it, let's look at it from the team's perspective. What were the circumstances for that team that you were working with that enabled someone to say, let's give the DFC to Chris Beattie? That specific uh, incident, we were sent to uh, support a slick that was uh, going to pull out uh, a guy who'd been uh, shot during uh, an engagement with the enemy. Charlie decided uh, that he would uh, try and shoot down the rescue helicopter and we were called in to support these guys because they'd, they'd actually walked into uh, a bunker uh, set up and so they'd been ambushed. So they had to get the guy out and they had to withdraw from where they were, were being uh, uh, fired upon, how, how they'd been ambushed. So we supported the, uh, the slick, the dust-off helicopter, he got away safely. Uh, then the guys on the ground decided that they'd have another crack at uh, Charlie. Uh, so they went forward again and then they got ambushed again. Uh, so they had to do another withdrawal. So we covered that withdrawal and we, we pulled them back or they put, withdrew themselves. I had been talking to uh, forward air controllers. So uh, they had a couple of F-100s that were holding uh, in, within the uh, vicinity. So we brought them in. They engaged where the enemy were. It was our job to go in and uh, mark them with uh, rockets, uh, mark them where the enemy were. And then I think they dropped some from memory. They dropped a couple of uh, napalms in that area. And then you know, we sort of ran out of uh, time. We had to go back, rearm, refuel, and uh, and that was about it. Did, did the wounded uh, soldier get rescued? Oh yeah, yeah. He he was out of the out of the way pretty quickly. I always thought, because it was nearer a river, and I always thought that I I had the impression that Charlie swam across the river with, um, um, what do you call it, uh, bamboo stuck out of the water, because it was it, it just seemed very strange that uh, they just disappeared all of a sudden. Well, um, what part of the 60s was this that this this incident occurred late 69 70 when did it occur do you remember yeah it was um early 1970 early 1970 and how much longer were you then in vietnam before you were sent back to australia uh that incident i think i was probably uh i, I was on the way out i probably had about two or three weeks maybe a month before i i left Okay. And coming back to Australia, what was then your role? Were, were you still stationed with 9 Squadron or then 5 Squadron, whichever it was? Uh, I was posted back to 5 Squadron for a period of about five months. That five months that I was back, I was hardly ever at 5 Squadron. I was 
deployed on exercise to West Australia with the SIS for uh, oh, about six weeks, I think, uh, you know, just working with the SAS. As often. still in a helicopter role? Yeah, yeah. still, uh, you know, letting the SAS know they were getting uh, preparing to uh, rotate up into nine squadrons, so I went over there to give them a, an idea how, how to work with the gunships, what the gunships could do and, and that sort of thing. And then uh, they went up to New Guinea and worked with the, well, they call them the number two Papua and New Guinea infantry. There was, they had two battalions anyway, the New Guinea uh, Army. So the SAS worked with them and uh, we worked with uh, three, three uh, Iroquois went up there and we all worked with the New Guinea Army and, and the SAS. How did you end up in Singapore training the Singapore Air Force? Well, it was 1975, I think. Uh, yeah, I went up there 72 and I came home in 75. Were they just establishing their own air force? Is that what was happening? Yeah, in 1965, Singapore was part of the uh, Malaysian Federation and, they, and Lee Kuan Yew pulled, pulled them out. So he set up his air force in 69, 70, and it was basically contracted out to the RAF to uh, set their air force up. And then under the CEDAW plan, Lee Kuan Yew specifically asked for flying instructors. So in early 71, our first two guys went up there, George Bliss and Peter Hay, they were uh, uh, Mackie instructors at Pierce. They they went over there, uh, went up there. And then myself and another guy, Terry Holt, um, following year in 72, we went up there as well. Um, Lee Kuan Yew obviously liked what was uh, being achieved because for the next 10 years or so, there were quite a few RAAF instructors that went up there. And in fact, a couple of guys, Angus Houston, he went up there. He did a tour up there as well. But Bruce Byron and Ian Fogarty set up the Singaporean equivalent of um, Central Flying School, in mm. other words, to train local guys as instructors. And so, eventually uh, the Singaporeans uh, decided to ask us and they, they set their flying training wing up in, at uh, Pierce. So uh, they've been there for now uh, 25, 30-odd yeah. years. Obviously, Lee Kuan Yew liked what the Australian Air Force was able to provide. I think so, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, he was a ter terrific guy. He, uh, We were losing a lot of students for various reasons and... Uh, he turned up in the squadron one day, put guards on the, the two doors that uh, you could get into the building, got all the instructors together. There were 26 of us from across the Commonwealth and just said, looked at us and said, um, you know, where are you from? What's wrong with my Air Force? Why why are all the students failing? And, uh, you know, what can we do about it? And the uh, I always had got a bit of a laugh out of this, but George Bliss uh Lee Kuan Yew looked at him and said, yeah, you're an Australian, obviously. What's wrong with my Air Force? And George said, uh, well, the students can't speak English. You know, they can speak uh, Chinese, but they can't speak English. So, so there's a language issue there. He said, OK. And a guy took a note of that. The next morning, we got a, a call. All instructors go to lecture room one. This guy comes in and says, uh, here is your language tutor, Lance Corporal Ng. He's here to teach you Mandarin. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> so they, they realised I had a problem and they had to do something about it. But, um, yeah, it didn't last very long, I might add. So did, we, what, did the, the Singaporeans, pilots or potential pilots, then have to learn English to be able to get the instructions from the Australian 
instructors or did you have to learn Mandarin? What was the deal? No, we had to learn Mandarin. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> That's what I say. Well, a lot of the kids already knew how to speak English, but some of them it was just it was their second language. So, you know, if you... You'd give them an emergency and you could see their head, their brains ticking over. They'd be uh, translating what you'd said from English to Mandarin and then they'd react to it. Yeah, okay. All right. Now, uh, I'm interested to know how you ended up in three different aerobatic teams, uh, the Roulettes, the Chinook Diamond Jubilee, and you also introduced the RAAF Balloon in 1990. But let's stay with the aerobatic teams. How did you end up in the Roulettes? That wasn't in helicopters, surely. No, 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 no. I, after I'd been... Uh, when I was in Singapore, I was flying a, a two or three different types of aeroplanes. The basic aeroplane was a Sia Maketi SF-260, and we had a little aerobatic team with that. Um, I f- forget what we formed at a National Day Parade or something or other. And then I, was, I spent a lot of time flying uh, a little jet, the Back 167 Strike Master, which was their advanced trainer and uh, lead-in fighter trainer. And then from there, uh, I had three years uh, doing that. I was then posted back to Central Flying School at Sale, and uh, for two years I flew as uh, rule at four. Where, and what about the Chinook Diamond Jubilee? What was the, was that a an aerobatic team with with Chinooks or what? I wouldn't say it was an aerobatic team, but w- what we did we did a synchronised pair where we showed off basically how fast the Chinook was, how you could, how big it was, how you could throw it around. But we did a we choreographed it so that uh, it was what we called the mating dance because uh, <laughs> one of the we had a particularly artistic um, pilot fellow called Dave Henderson or Hendo, and Hendo made this baby Chinook. It was probably about I don't know maybe four foot long and it had big eyes and uh, so we we danced around in this synchronized formation and the idea was uh, that one would eventually land run along on its hind wheels in front of the crowd, an ambulance would go racing out. Uh, we had the tallest, biggest guy in the squadron dressed up as a nurse <laughs> and, the, and the shortest uh, guy we could find also dressed up as a nurse. And they pulled this baby Chinook out of the back on a little um, trailer and then this uh, ambulance hooked up to the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> And they drove past in front of the crowd. There was about thirty, forty thousand people there with a big bottle that had Avtur written on it, uh-huh. shoved up the backside of this uh, baby Chinook. And then one of the guys would hold up a big sign saying, "It's a boy." <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was very, very funny. But Who, whose uh, who's uh, diamond jubilee was it? It was the Air Force's 60th. Oh, at the Royal Australia. Okay, right. That, yeah. makes, that makes sense. Uh, and, and what about the RAAF balloon? What in God's name is the RAAF balloon? Well, I'm just trying to think when it was. It was about 1990. Yes, 1990. Yeah, and someone in the chief's office uh, decided that this would be a good idea. You know, they the, the chief agreed. And it was just all, all for PR and stuff like that. And I happened to be working uh, on the ninth floor of uh, A Block in Russell, and the chief's office, I think, was on the seventh or eighth. And he happened to see me in uh, in the lift one day, and uh, he just said, uh, just looked at me and said, your name's come up. I want you to fly the balloon. <laughs> That's how it started. But um, what, what, for what reason? What, just as a PR exercise? Just as a PR exercise, yeah. It was a very pretty balloon. It was... Uh, 
dark blue and light blue with uh, the Air Force rondelle on uh, one side and the Air Force's crest in gold on the other side. And uh, we used to just take it out in the mornings and uh, if the winds were favourable, we'd fly it over Lake Burley Griffin and then we started taking it to little country towns. Uh, we took it up to Darwin for a big um, anniversary parade where the American ambassador presented a a presidential citation from World War II to two squadron and 13 squadron. And, uh, yeah, we took it all around and uh, I flew that for about two years and then I uh, I got posted to the States. So uh, Yeah, I, will, I, I, want, I want you to talk to me about the Pentagon in a moment, but I believe uh, the Air Force balloon either still exists, I think it does still exist, and it's now in the shape of a, a pilot's helmet. Yeah, I, yes, I, you, you're right there. I think they've got two or three balloons now, and they're, they're actually a flight of Central Flying School. I think they come under CFS at Sale. Okay, okay. Fascinating career you've got, Chris. How did you end up in the Pentagon? Because you were there for three years. I mean, that's a pretty prestigious appointment, the Pentagon. Yeah, it's uh, Headquarters USAF Plans and Operations Division. People now talk about it as uh, Five Eyes. It went back a long time. We were what they call the Air Standardisation Coordinating Committee, and there was a, a member from each of the five English-speaking countries. That's US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. The idea was, would it, was that if uh, we were going to operate in a coalition, then we needed to standardise our procedures and a lot of our manufacturing operating procedures technical procedures, if you like. And that all started from uh, General George Marshall. Yes. Who was the chief of the uh, Defence Forces during the war for the Americans. And he, he said, if you're going to operate with with allies, as allies, then you need needed to use the same procedures, use the same fuel, use the same electrical power points so that one country's aircraft could be uh, serviced by the other. So... That's how Five Eyes, you know, basically started. So what we did, we each country had uh, certain a certain number of working groups, working parties that you could belong to. So when I was there, I looked after uh, um, what they call it imagery, intelligence, and reconnaissance, uh, transportation. Uh, fuels, uh, all all that sort of stuff. It was an effective relationship while you were working in with the Pentagon and the Five Eyes, all working together. Effective? Oh yeah, very very much so. So um, uh, the the army army had a similar. Uh, they were part of the organisation, and I think that they. I used to do a lot of work with the armies as well. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, it was. Uh, it was a great job, very, very interesting job. And, and what it about – sorry, go on. I was going to say it was it was how Australia actually got a foot in the door with what was going on with NATO because in NATO they produced what, they, what were called STANAGs or standardisation agreements where the various countries in NATO agreed that that's how they would operate, how they would do things. So with – the Five Eyes organisation, what we basically did was amongst uh, the five of us, because we were all English speaking, we could hammer out an agreement. And then the three countries that were part of uh, NATO, they would go in and say, 
well, look, we've already done all the uh, the nuts and bolts, the hard work. We we agree with this. Uh, we'll let you guys have a look at it, and if you agree with it, then we'll cover sheet it and make that a stanag. So Australia, in in that sense, we actually, uh, you know, were able to influence, uh, you know, certain agreements, certain uh, procedures. So yeah, yeah we, we, it was pretty smart. Yeah, and, and now 2022, uh, we see Australia being represented at NATO at the most recent meeting. Um, you also. Flying Chinooks again, I believe, uh, were awarded the Air Force Cross. How did that come about? I got posted out of CFS uh, back to helicopters, and I really wanted to go to Chinook. It is the most amazing helicopter that uh, I think you'll ever come across. It was the biggest, the fastest uh, helicopter that we've ever had, the Australian Defence Force. Um, very, very versatile. Yeah, an unbelievable helicopter, and uh, it was just one of that. You know, it was. It took us a while to get it established. I guess you could call it uh, in the air force because it, it had a checkered history. They they ordered twelve of them in nineteen seventy. They also ordered at the same time eleven Huey Cobra gunships, and then when we pulled out in seventy one and Gough Whitlam uh, got into power. They cancelled the orders, or they tried to cancel the order. They cancelled the order for uh, the 11 gunships. Uh, the US Army were happy to cancel that order, but we the, we weren't allowed to cancel the Chinook order because it had gone too far. So we ended up with 12, and they mothballed six, and they gave six to uh, the squadron and said, that's all you can have. Six just isn't enough. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up with all sorts of logistics problems. It was a new helicopter. They didn't have they hadn't got rid of all the, uh, the gremlins in it before we, we tried to operate it. So it took us a number of years before we, uh, uh, you know, we sorted out that mess. And then eventually they decided that uh, 1980, um, we'd get the whole lot out of storage. From about 1980 till they were finally mothballed in 19. 89, we took that long to basically get them all out of storage. And unfortunately, yeah. about 1985, we one crashed and <coughs> the pilot was killed. But, you know, and that set us back a while as well. So, okay. uh, yeah, I guess in answer to your question. The, uh, Air, For the you know, Air Force Cross, how did that come about? Uh, I guess it was because we, we just had to work so hard, you know, yep, getting right. the thing up and running. So it was all part and parcel. I, at that stage, I was the 2IC, the XO, so, uh, yeah. You've got to tell me about the East Timor campaign because you were responsible for operating Dili and Bakau airfields during that. My people were in the sense that when we went into Timor in uh, uh, 99, the Air Force were given the task of operating those two uh, uh, airfields. Right. My predecessor, Bruce Wood, uh, Bruce Wood Pirtle, um, he actually went up there and uh, did a lot of the, that legwork. My job back in Australia was we were given uh, a lot of money to rebuild the logistics force of Combat Support Group, which had been you know, allowed to run down over the years. And uh, so that was my main, main focus was uh, And that was 1999 when you were Air Commodore with that group? Uh, 2000. 2000. 2000 2001, yeah. yeah. So would would I be right in assuming that your final job was uh, Commander Air Forces Training Command? That was my final job, yes. What is your enduring memory of your time in the Air Force? 
my enduring memory was the people. I've just got so much respect for all the people that I've ever met and worked with in the Air Force. And it doesn't matter whether they were flyers or techos or, you know, combat support group. We had just about every mustering you could think of. And they were the same high calibre person that you could possibly ever wish yeah. to meet and work with. And I've found that just talking to the people that I've spoken to over the last year or so, it's an amazing group of men and women, the Royal Australian Air Force. It really is. Do you lament, because you had so much love for the helicopter, do you lament that the Air Force is no longer in control of the helicopter? Obviously, uh, when the decision was first made, I was uh, shattered because uh, I, I thought it was it was a bad move, you know, because we had, at that particular time, we had about 1,500 uh, people in the Air Force who were directly linked with working with the helicopters. And uh, I think every, everyone, they just loved you know, having the helicopters and, it, you know, it took a while to uh, get over that. But in the last, uh, after I retired from the Air Force, I worked with uh, John Kindler and Bob Trelaw, Neil Smith, doing airworthiness boards. And um, because of my background, uh, I obviously ended up, ended up by doing a lot of Army Chinooks, Army Blackhawks, um, Navy uh, Seahawks and the, and the stuff. And um, I think Army and Navy do a terrific job with, uh, you know, it's yeah. taken a long time for, for Army, 30-odd years, but, um, you know, they're doing a pretty good job, I think. A good note to conclude. Chris, I want to thank you very much for your time and congratulate you on your career with, I think, the best Air Force in the world, and that's the Royal Australian Air Force. And once and again and finally, I congratulate you and your team for being awarded the DFC. Thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.